Anyway, is that not lovely? Just something, isn't it nice to see something good in life? Some remnants, some fingerprints, some, some reminder that, that God is good in creation and all that. Anyway, I just I love that. Um, all right, turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John. We continue in our study <clears throat> of this book. We started in John chapter 1, verse 1. We're moving through it. We're now in John chapter 3. And uh, even though we covered a couple of these verses last week, we're, we're overlapping, we're backtracking and pulling a couple of them in to this study just for continuity. So we will start in verse 17 of John chapter 3. And it might be noted that uh, this is right after the big famous verse uh, that everybody knows as a summary of the gospel. So right after, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right after that, here where we start, verse 17. This is God's word. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, years ago, quite a few years ago, I mean 25 years ago, uh, 26 years, 25 years ago, I was on jury duty. And has anybody ever been on jury duty in here? Um, When I was on it, it was back when it was a two-week block. Anybody on it when it was a two-week block? Now I think it's just a week. Isn't it a week now? It's three? Three? Gosh, that's like being in the Army. Wow, wow. Well, so when I did it, it was two week. It was a two-week run, and you go down there, and you're hanging out and, and all that, and a lot of people complain about how boring it was and all that, um, and it certainly can be, but I got called on two cases, and uh, then it got really kind of interesting. In fact, this is weird. I know you're not going to believe this because I think I was 31 at the time, but I was jury foreman both times, so that was kind of wild. And so uh, we had a, uh, an assault thing and some other stuff, assault, public urination, uh, a few other little things peppered in there. It was very interesting. Um, and then there was an attempted murder one, the next one, which is pretty wild. So that was pretty crazy. And so you're, you, you've got this big responsibility. When they, when they send you back into the room, you're like, dang, um, this is not like TV. I mean, there's a real person with their real life. And, uh, you know, it's not like Perry Mason you know, Perry Mason, everybody he represented was really, truly innocent. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, in fact, one time they, he lost one case, he got it back. But he lost a case and he was like, oh, but she's innocent. He was the only one who believed that she was innocent. Well, it ain't that way anymore. Uh, everyone is, uh, uh, has the right to uh, representation. Everybody needs a fair trial. And so attorneys represent someone. They present the best case forward and all that. And so you're, as, as in the jury, you're going, golly. What's true? Uh, and whatever we decide as a, as a, as a group of people uh, is going to determine at least the condition of a portion of this person's life or maybe their whole life. Just big responsibility, this idea of a person facing judgment. It's an idea we should never take lightly. And uh, when you think about your own lives, 
your own lives as human beings, we all look back and there are things that we said that we wish we didn't say, that we did that we wish we didn't do, uh, and even things that we thought where we think, how can I think that? Um, we look back on them and we, and we feel shame and we feel remorse and we feel a sense of right and wrong. Well, that, there's, there's nothing light about that. Um, this idea of judgment um, is, is very important, uh, very important to God, and any rational person knows um, that uh, actions have consequences. So let's look at our main idea here today, which is this. Holiness plus darkness demands judgment. That is a formula that cannot be undone. <laughs> uh, God sees and judges in righteousness, and um, if there's darkness, um, it must be judged. That's a very simple concept. I mean, if they catch the bad guy who did the bad thing, uh, the bad guy must be judged. The bad guy must face judgment. They put him on trial. Uh, that's, a, that's a very simple concept that we all understand. Well, let's just sweep over what we've covered in the last few weeks. Because uh, when we look at this gospel and we come to this point in this gospel, um, it's, it's important to kind of feel the sweep of what the gospel writer is doing. You know, as I've told you a bunch of times, John's gospel is different than the other gospels, the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. John stands alone, and his gospel has a different rhythm to it, a different audience, and a different focus. And that starts in chapter 1, verse 1, where he's talking about the divinity and the preexistence and the creative power of Jesus, God the Son. Now, that's quite a way to start a gospel, isn't it? I mean, that's right out of the gate. That's what he starts with is the divinity of Jesus, his preexistence, also a, a validation of his divinity, and his creative power, also a validation of his divinity. But there's also something included, which um, it, it's, not, uh, it's not just a little sprinkle of uh, theological uh, uh, powdered sugar on top of that divinity, okay? It's a part of divinity too, but it's a, it's a very important part uh, um, for us to keep in mind as we move on and look at this passage. Look at um, verse four of chapter one. In him, this person, the word with a capital W, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So this person who is divine, this person right in the beginning of this gospel, who is preexistent, who has all creative power, there's something else we need to know about him too. He's light. He's the light of the world. There is no darkness in him. He's utterly pure. And that light of his is the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so this, this light bearer, this, this representation of the purity of God is our very life itself, and that's how this whole gospel starts. Now, we move on through, and you see that uh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, it goes on. It says that uh, in him was life. He gives that life to us. And here we are in our passage. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Remember when Nicodemus says, um, how can these things be, and, and so on? And Jesus says, aren't you the teacher of Israel, and so on? Um, Jesus is answering this conversation in Nicodemus, and John, the gospel writer, continues this theme. And in verse 19 of chapter 3, it says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So, in a, in a very short space, chapters one through three, we get this picture of God who sent his son to burst on the scene in this world. The very creator, the very divine one, the very one through whom all things were made that were made. He's the light. And uh, there's a problem. We rejected the light. 
What comes, what comes with that? Judgment. It demands judgment. And nothing has demanded more judgment, more clearly, more, more acutely than, than this, okay? Rejected by humanity, the rescuer uh, that God sent. So when you move through the, all of chapter one, you see um, this baptizer guy, John the Baptist, right? He's baptizing people and he's baptizing people and he's preaching a message of repentance. He's saying that we're, that, that he was saying to his hearers who were Jewish, um, we're, we're in need of cleansing. And so he's preaching a baptism of repentance. He's talking about someone who's going to come after him, right? And um, what makes it so unique, that just John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, baptizing people, preaching a, gospel, a baptism of repentance, what makes it unique is that he is preaching to Jews. You know, we read that and we go, okay, John, you know, uh, uh, oh, there, there's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He's preaching to Jews. His ministry of, of baptism is a ministry to Jews, now, what's, what's amazing about that is they've got the law of God. They've got heritage. They can point to Abraham. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. Um, they, they've, got, they've got God's uh, uh, leading in the wilderness. They've got all this history, and yet there's no safety in that. John the Baptist is preaching a gospel of repentance to Jews, all right, so that's very important for us to understand uh, this, this passage before us. Um, we'll go on, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more in a second. Then, after John the baptizer, we see Jesus with his zeal for his father's house. Um, what constitutes real worship? That um, approaching this God is not a matter of externals, but it's an issue of the heart, all right? And uh, so Jesus demonstrates this, this, the real meaning behind the temple. The temple. Um, and then he engages with this guy Nicodemus, this Pharisee under the cloak of night. Uh, and he tells this Pharisee that um, he dialogues with him and he talks about the need for spiritual life where there was no life before. He says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus puzzles over that. And Jesus says, why do you puzzle? Um, uh, and, and so folks, the, the, all that to say this, um, um, we are spiritually dead, and what the dead man needs is life. That's Jesus preaching to Nicodemus. What the dead man needs is life. So to summarize all that, Christ is the light of the world. The world rejected that light, and what is needed is life. What is needed is uh, help from the outside. All right. And so our chief operating principle is that holiness plus darkness demands judgment. So let's look at our first uh, point today, which is the walking dead. Now, the idea of uh, sinful human beings as zombies uh, is not new to the Gospel of John. Um, it, is a, it is a point brought up uh, by Jesus, of course, himself in, in chapter 3, uh, verse 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. What's the implication? If you need to be born again, if you need to be spiritually born, well, what's the implication? That you ain't spiritually alive. That's the implication. That you're walking around on a, if you, a person without Jesus Christ as Savior uh, is walking around like a zombie, truly like a zombie. Um, you know, in, in Psalm 51, verse 5, it says this, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, why does, it, why does the psalmist write that? Um, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that his mother had a... a, a, a dirty occupation. Um, what he's saying is, I was born into this world a sinner. I was born into this world in need. Um, he's saying that he was born under sin. 
He was saying that he was born into a sinful dominion, a sinful kingdom, uh, into a system of seeing life. I was born into a system of seeing life a certain way, and uh, he was born under the curse of judgment. And I say all that because, um, you know, you look at verse 17, it says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I think um, we read that and we go, oh, that's just an encouraging thought. Oh, that's sweet. Um, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. Yay, I like that. That's good, promising. Um, But uh, in order that the world might be saved through him. And we go, well, that's hopeful and, and really great. It is. That's hopeful and wonderful. You go ahead and embroider that. It's fine. It's good. But remember, we're right on the heels of this guy, Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee and an educated man um, and probably affluent. And uh, he's asking these questions of Jesus, and there's this Jewish juju in the air. It's this, this, it's this, this, this uh, Jewish savior ministering to this Jewish uh, expert in religious studies. And uh, so with, with that in mind, what might you see if you were a Jewish person reading this, and you got a Jewish guy who's, who's, uh, who's, who's thought to be divine, and he's talking to a Jewish religious leader, and, and you were a Jewish reader reading the account of this, what would you think? Look at verse 17 again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If you were a Jewish first reader, what would you think of that? What would you make of it, I wonder? Well, um, it, of course, harkens back to uh, Genesis 12, right? Um, let me jump there real quick. You don't have to turn. But in, in Genesis 12, um, uh, God says to Abraham, he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, so God, God says something to Abraham, and he says, you'll be a blessing. He says, I'm going to protect you and bless you and curse those who curse you, and uh, he gets in there again, and all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham is this conduit of blessing. It's not just that God is kind to the Jewish people. From the very beginning, when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, which, by the way, is justification by faith alone, he believed the promise of God and God credited it to him as righteousness. That's a, that's a saving moment right there. Um, but it's not, it's not just to end with the Jewish people. From the plan from the beginning is that the peoples of the world are going to be blessed. God's dealings with Abraham are going to be a blessing to the peoples of the world. Now, back to verse 17 in our passage here. When the Jewish reader reads, oh, God didn't send a son of the world to condemn the world, what are they thinking? They're thinking, oh, yeah, those dirty, gross Gentiles. Um, God didn't send a son of the world to condemn the dirty, gross Gentiles, but in order that the dirty, gross Gentiles might be saved through him. You see the great inclusiveness of the gospel here. That's what a Jewish reader would be thinking. It's, it's much more, um, that's why I kind of had to feel like I had to drag these back in again. It's, it's, it's more than we would just kind of uh, gloss over. You could see something distinct about the, the, the character of the Savior uh, and, and, and his salvation. There's this inclusiveness. Um, not just the Jews be saved, but the world be saved. 
He didn't come to condemn the world. It's this inclusiveness of the gospel. But also note the inclusiveness here in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's very powerful and convicting. Wouldn't it be to a Jewish reader? They go, whoa, 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 wait a second. Man, you're blowing my mind here. You're saying that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. So all the dirty, nasty Gentiles who aren't Jewish don't have our heritage. Um, You've come to redeem them too. But it's inclusive. It continues. It's saying, if you don't believe in the Son of God, Jesus, who was sent, you're condemned already. Jewish people, why do you think John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance? Because your, your, your national heritage isn't going to save you. Religious activity isn't going to save you. Believing the promise of God is going to save you. That's what worked with Abraham. And here, God has sent the light into the world, and believing on that light is the only way to a Savior. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you see um, that, that John, John, the gospel writer here, is putting all people in the same situation. All people are sinners. All people are on an even plane when it comes to God and his holiness. Um, Darkness plus holiness demands judgment. That's everybody. Now, here's a nice uh, articulation of uh, the gospel. Let me just uh, um, uh, give you an application this way. Um, The idea of walking dead. In Ephesians 2 verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Isn't that interesting? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So you're living physically, but dead spiritually. That's a spiritual zombie. Um, how about this? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Well, whoever's reading that or hearing that is obviously a living person. I mean, you read that and, and it's, it's going through your living human brain. Um, it's, it's challenging your living human heart, the core of who you are. Um, and yet, it's, it's, a, it's a proclamation of, of death. Um, let me give you one more, and this is, um, this is in Colossians 2. Hang on a second. Um, yeah, um, verse 13, listen to this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is the gospel message. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. What does a dead man need? Life. It says God made you alive and the debt has been canceled. How did he do that? He did that by setting the debt aside, nailing it to the cross. That is a very clear gospel declaration of substitutionary curse-bearing, that the rescuer, the light who was sent into this world, was sent to die to take the sinner's place, that our sin might be put on him because he was innocent, and his righteousness might be given to us as a gift. Isn't that a beautiful snapshot of the gospel for, for a bunch of zombies? All right, next, next point, vampires. Uh, why, why is the world already condemned? Well, um, let me be clear. The Bible is very um, unabashed about its accusation of uh, fallen men and women 
uh, born in sin. As I, as I quoted from Isaiah 50, oh, excuse me, Psalm 51, um, Ephesians 2, 3 says that we were by nature objects of wrath. So that means you're born in this world and by nature you're already in trouble. By nature, you're already under God's judgment. You already need help. You already need a savior. Here's another one from Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Do you speak lies? You sure do. Uh, and we all do. And um, there's deceit in each of us that we can see and that we can't see, more that we can't see than we can see. And uh, that has come forth from birth, friends. How about this from 1 Corinthians 15? Um, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Isn't that pretty cool? Let's talk about the first Adam, Adam, who sinned. uh, And because of his sin, we are born in sin. We uh, we have inherited his uh, sinful... um, 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 position, but the last Adam, Jesus, he became a life-giving spirit. Why is he a life-giving spirit, say it the scriptures? Because a dead man needs life. Don't be confused. It's not, it's not that you're sick. It's not that you're making a, um, a well-thought-out decision where you write down the pros and cons and you go, okay, if I don't have Jesus, then this. If I do have Jesus, then this. And okay, let's see, Buddha, Confucius, Islam, all these other choices and flavors. Mm, I pick Jesus. That's not it. What the gospel teaches is that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And what you need is the life-giving spirit. Without life, you ain't deciding to do anything. With life, you're deciding and deciding and deciding and deciding and choosing and loving and worshiping. Yes, it's true. You make these choices. But not without life you don't, say it the scriptures. It's so often said, I think you know, that um, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born sinners. We're born in this world with a need. Our own deeds then condemn us. All right? So notice the tension that the Bible always allows between that reality. Uh, Yes, we're born in sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's true. But it's not without personal culpability. Yeah, we sin because we're sinners. But we sin and we're guilty for our sin. Um, it's our sin that, it's our own deeds that condemn us. Look at verse 19 of our passage today in John uh, 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. Okay, this is the verdict. Bailiff, will you read the verdict? Okay. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There you have the deeds matching the condition of the heart. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Um, You see that there's a personal culpability too. So we're born in sin, that's why we sin, but our sin also condemns us, and we are righteously convicted. Is there a mystery in that? There certainly is. But you understand that the Bible allows for that tension throughout the gospel message. Now, application for your life. Would you turn, please, to Romans Chapter 1. So flip to the right, about a quarter of an inch. Romans chapter 1. And uh, let's say verse 19. Uh, Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress 
the truth. Okay, God's shown himself. Um, God's shown that there's a standard. God's shown that there's a right and wrong. It's, it's hardwired into us. We can't miss it. But we try to suppress that truth. That's, the, that's what a sinner does uh, rather than face judgment is suppress the truth and try to, try to put this, push this God away. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, back to our passage here. You look at that against this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, verse 19. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know the word um, love for love the darkness? People love the darkness. You know that it's, uh, I, I, I'm thinking I'm saying it right. I don't have it written down here, but I think it's agapeo. Agape, does that sound familiar? That's the, the brand of love that we were talking about uh, God having for us in salvation. Well, guess what? So idolatrous are we. Is that the kind of love we have for our sin? We love darkness. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's our quaint sins. We love our sins. We, we like doing them. Uh, we don't want to humble ourselves. Uh, people love darkness rather than light. And, of course, evil deeds followed. Our sin problem, ladies and gentlemen, uh, lies in our love for darkness. And as we maneuver through this life as Christians, that we got to remember that, that we have a love for darkness. Uh, we're, we're pulled back to it. Um, it's, it's a temptation. It's, it's constantly yanking at us. Um, it's kind of like these horrible pharmaceutical commercials you've seen. You know what I'm talking about? They're all horrible, <laughs> horrible. And whatever dread disease the pharmaceutical companies are, are advertising, um, they, they have people doing activities. Um, I don't know why I'm grabbing the bike. The grossest, one, the grossest one ever is for an STD, and they show a girl riding a bicycle. And, you, and you, you know, if you have this STD, you're like, oh, I could never do that. Oh, with this pill, you might be able to ride a bike again. There's a whole bunch of them. But you notice, too, like, it, it'll be like the lady with the upset stomach. Her like, stomach is following around like the business meetings. Huh? And that's her bladder. Yeah, her bladder's following her around. Uh, and then there's another one where the lady's in a leotard in her stomach, and she's like going to the meetings too, and she's like in this annoying intestines. It's disgusting. Um, I'm straying from my notes. I can't remember why I brought that in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our problem is, you notice that the pharmaceutical companies, and like there's, a, there's a, uh, one that reduces uh, uric acid or something like that, but then they show this guy carrying this glass thing full of the splooshing acid. Uh, it's like, look, it's going to help you, but you, you still got acid. <laughs> it's going to help you, but your bladder's still going to the, the wedding with you. Um, the, you might as well make it your flower, girl, because that bladder's not leaving you. Um, <laughs> we still have this sin propensity, friends, and the sin propensity, at, when you strip it all away, is a love for darkness. And I'll illustrate it this way, and then we'll move on. But um, I... I, I I think I told this a few years ago, but our college ministry years ago went to a, a trip to New York, and we went to two or three homeless shelters. Um, and, uh, and I remember sitting on a park bench with this guy, and it, it, was, it was early on in ministry for me too, and it was just very in, 
impactful uh, to me, or impacting, however you say it. I'm, I'm out there in the rain, it's cold, and I'm sitting on a park bench with this kind of heavyset Hispanic guy. And um, the, the homeless shelter guys, I mean, a lot of them were homeless too, and they come out of it and they go on to run these ministries, and it's quite a wonderful thing. But they know what to say. They know how to talk to these guys, and they were like, look, these are the kinds of questions you need to ask these guys. When was the last time you saw your children? Um, do you know if your parents are still alive? Those are, those are compelling questions when you've been homeless for 14 years. And so I did that. I sat there with this Mexican guy, and I said, uh, it, was, I, it was just pouring down rain. And I remember I had, he was wearing a Polar Tech shirt, and it was, just, it was just wicking away moisture, but he was just soaked. He was soaked. And I said, uh, when was the last time you saw your children? And I mean, he burst into tears. And I asked if his parents were still alive, and he didn't know if his father was still alive. And uh, I, I just spent, I don't know, 18, 20 minutes with him on this park bench in New York. And, um, and I was like, I was befuddled. I'm going, hey, come with me. Just come with me. I mean, that van is heated. I'll put you in that van. We'll take you to this place where you'll be safe. You'll have a bed. You'll have a roof over your head tonight. You'll have a hot meal. You'll have a hot shower. And there are guys that will care about you and, and respect you and, and try to help you get back on your feet and, and back integrated in life. And uh, he, he would not do it. And, and he didn't say this, but I could see what he was thinking. He was looking out at his world and he was thinking, and leave all this? I could just feel it. That's the problem of sin. That's the lure. You know, we, we, we taste of, of grace, um, and, but then we're going to want to go back to Egypt where the brick making is really hard and, and there's captivity awaiting. Why do we do that? Friends, we need to remember that the issue is this love for darkness. We're idolaters, and when we sin, what we're, what we're doing is not just tripping up, making a, a little moral error. We are being pulled back into darkness. The answer, friends, is to live a life that is in the light. First um, Timothy 6.19 talks about the life that is truly life. Well, that's life in the light, and that's what God offers you in salvation. All right, our last point, uh, naked in the world. Verse 20, um, everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and listen, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed, but whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, can I point out the things that I underlined in my Bible right there? As we read those, it was read, read verse 21, whoever does what is true, I underline that, comes to the Light, I underline that, so that it might be clearly seen, I underline that, that his works have been carried out in God. Those four things are a great summary of what it is to walk in the light. It's not just some nebulous thing or some sentimental thing or some, some spiritual bubble bath that you, you, know, you kind of feel uh, exhilarated a little bit uh, in the Lord. And, and then listen, there's nothing wrong with being exhilarated in the Lord, being happy-hearted. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying to you is when you say, hmm, he never really explained what living in the light is. Yes, I have. You do what is true. You come toward the light 
so that what you do may be clearly seen and that your works are carried out in God, that is, in his will. That's what it is to live in the light. And John Stott says this, and I love this quote. I've told you this before. But he says, at all times, you're either running toward or away from accountability. At all times, running toward it or away from it. There's like no in-between. You either eh, step on the gas, go this way, or eh, step on the gas, go that way, toward or, or away from accountability. Um, and there are, um, there are things that you can measure. Like, um, oh, I'll tell you what, let me read this to you. This is a pastor uh, and commentator. Oh, yeah, listen to this. This, is, this, will, this will convict you. Listen. He says, do you have a sin that keeps you from Christ? If so, recognize your peril. Sin promises pleasure, but especially when it keeps us from following Jesus, it is mortally destructive to our souls. I've learned many years, after many years of ministry, when he, he talks, he's talking about a congregation, um, a congregational member um, sliding away, backsliding, disappearing, going back to a former way of life, uh, making grievous mistakes, unwise mistakes, where all the closest friends in the whole world to you are saying, no, don't go there, no, don't go there, no, don't go there. And the response is, well, you don't know me. This guy has seen that a zillion times like I've seen that a zillion times. Here's what he says in his experience, and mine too. He says, that person has always stopped reading his or her Bible, always has stopped meeting with God in prayer, and rarely, if ever, worships God in the company of the church. The reason is that God keeps us from sin or sin keeps us from God. No one can serve two masters, and so it is with every kind of sin. We must war against sin, never allow our love for sin to keep us from Christ. But I'm telling you, those are, those are barometers, friends. If you shy away from the name of Jesus, if you shy away from God's word, if you shy away from prayer, and if you look at congregational worship and you go, eh, Man, it's my stupid songs. It's not a bunch of stupid songs. It's not. And it's not just because I'm a worship leader. I want you to support my music ministry. I don't care about that. I'm telling you, as a Bible teacher, if I didn't do any music, I would say that's critical for your soul. And when people are averse to gathered worship, calamity is not far along, not far behind, <laughs> quickly along. Um, so just, just know that um, if, if you're, you know, listen, um, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If you're, if you're not moving toward the light, what do you think is going to happen to you? You ain't going to be on the path. Hey, uh, let's do one more thing and uh, we'll, we'll quit. Uh, go, to, go to 1 John, if you would. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. So you're almost to Revelation. If you hit Revelation back up about five pages. This is 1 John. This is the same writer of the gospel, the same guy. 1 John 1, 5, it says this. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. Okay, that's the gospel message. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, 
and his word is not in us. Um, I'll close this way. Going through security in an airport. Um, it's never good for me. Um, it's not good for the bald man, is it? Doesn't matter how square you look. You know, I mean that as a compliment, a high compliment too, you know. Um, I'm, a, I'm an ambassador for the bald people. Um, you go through and they're like, you know, it's like, <clears throat> bald man, aisle three. You know, you're going to get poked and prodded, man. Uh, they do not like the bald man. Uh, now, I will say, since I've grown the beard, they're like, hello, sire, please move through. You know, they, they, I, it's, it's really helped my situation a lot. And, of course, with the knees, now I go through the thing and I'm wanded and beeped and zapped and all that stuff, so I have metal parts in my body and all that. But it's never good going through. And so even with my knees... Even with TSA pre, when you get the thing and you're like, oh, awesome, I don't have to take off my shoes. Still, I have to go through the thing, I have to do it, and then they have to poke me and run and on. And then the last thing they do to de- totally degrade me is uh, even though they've got the body image thing, they still can't believe this is actual human flesh. <laughs> and they're like, I could just, every time I do it, they're like, pick up your shirt. You know, I'm like, there, is everybody happy? I don't have drugs taped to my body. Are you happy now? I'm totally disgusting, gross. Um, what I'm saying to you is the Christian life is not as unpleasant as that, but it, but it is taking a shirt off. Um, it is being in the presence of God's people saying, you know what? What a, what a hard life. What, a, what sin propensities I have. Um, it's a mess. Um, sometimes I've done things that are ashamed, I'm ashamed of. Um, there's always relationships I have to repair. It's hard. It's messy. You ought to talk to elders. Elders will go, you know, it's like, oh, I get to be an elder at a church. No, that's not what they're saying. They're saying, in my world, uh, you do this or you're out. In my world, you do this or you get a thing in your file. In my world, it's this. But in the church world, you have to listen. We have to listen, and I have to listen to you, and I have to listen to you, and I have to listen to you, and your kid is in that grace group, and your kid plays on that person's, and he's a coach of so-and-so. It's all integrated, and it's all just so complex. It is. Um, But it's us together. And in a way, we're all just taking off our shirt and showing our flab and showing our sin and confessing our sins one to another, and that's that's what health is. That's part of living in the light, and that's part of why um, the gospel is... uh, a means of grace, uh, why the church is a means of grace um, in implementing the gospel. Let's pray. Um, Holy Father, we come before you and we thank you that, uh, that uh, the, the Christianity that is often packaged as some little um, sanitized club of goody-two-shoes people uh, isn't that at all. We are a complicated... Um, often confused, often messy bunch of people, uh, but we're yours, and we're each other's. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be people who long to live in the light. Uh, we, we pray, Lord, that you would show us what it is to move toward the light, to move toward you, to move toward accountability one to another. And Lord, let us not miss these key indicators like, like, like shying away from your name or shying away from your word or, your, or prayer or gathered uh, worship, or the unifying voice of the preacher. Let us not shy away from that, Lord. It is, it is ill for our soul. Cause us to be healthy people. 
Um, show us again the glory of the gospel and let our hearts delight and live in it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate you.